You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, December 14th, 2021. Our goal is to create sustainable transportation, both financially sustainable and environmentally sustainable transportation here in Bloomington. Later in the program, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Jacob Brunig, a volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we turn to Jim Eagleman of the Brown County Hour for his essay entitled, Farmer's Almanac. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Commissioners voted to amend a zoning ordinance for future development at their December 8th meeting. The amendment only affects the development of land greater than five acres. Assistant Director of the Planning Department, Jackie Nestor-Jalen, presented the amendment. So just a quick summary of this text amendment. This is Ordinance 2021-57. It's amendment to Chapter 815, which is Site Plan Review. And the request this morning is to add on an addition to allow for phasing of larger projects. So right now we allow for phasing under our subdivision control ordinance, and we also allow for phasing for lands that are zoned plan unit development. Um, The only thing that this leaves out is for uh, properties that are zoned by right, not a plan unit development that do not involve a subdivision are currently left out of the phasing possibility. So we are adding this in to be consistent with other parts of the ordinance. Jalen explained the purpose of the amendment and how the sanctions benefit Monroe County residents. The benefit of phasing for the planning department and for um, the county and the developer is that we can potentially reduce the amount of ground that is disturbed at the initial onset of the project um, if they choose to do so in phases. Um, Additionally, it allows us to see the entire scope of the project at once without limiting their ability to occupy uh, structures as they're completed within phases. But it still gives us the protection and the leverage of future phases and future buildings that are tied to later requirements and making sure each phase is standalone by the ordinance. So I talked a little bit about the applicability. They have to be at least five acres. Um, When we're talking about phasing, how we will review this in the planning office is that they're actually going to have both an illustrative map clearly delineating each phase, as well as a combined narrative. So we understand that both of these will be able to be enforceable by the county if and when they get to the point where they're requesting occupancy and a land use certificate from planning. So we think that these two items together will give us um, a strong ability to enforce the ordinance. Commissioner Lee Jones expressed her support for the ordinance. I think this is an excellent amendment to the chapter. It really makes sure that 
that things go the way they're supposed to, um, which doesn't always happen. So I'm very supportive of this. Commission member Julie Thomas said that the amendment would help protect Monroe County residents from things such as stormwater runoff, while allowing community members to get projects approved in a timely manner. The amendment passed unanimously. Thomas reminded county residents that applications for Monroe County boards and commissions are available. She encouraged individuals who are interested in making the community better to apply. The next county commissioner's meeting will be held on December 15th. The City of Bloomington Board of Public Works approved the installation of a fiber optic line on South Strong Drive at their meeting on December 7th. Public Works Director Adam Wasson presented the resolution. This is to install a fiber line for Catalan that would be a private fiber line. Usually those aren't allowed in the public rights of way. Um, <clears throat> we've worked closely with them and their team to make sure that they identify this as a private utility with the 811 system in Indiana, pay for all the locate fees for any locates requested in the area, and then take on all maintenance uh, responsibilities and costs associated with having that private line within the public right of way. They also added some excuse me, I believe some hand holes on each side of the road to even draw further attention to the location of these, um, of this fiber optics. So um, staff's requesting approval and the board support. Project engineer Patrick Durkees added the approval for the street closure and a noise permit were included in the resolution. Board member Kyla Cox Deckard asked if they would be able to extend the noise permits if the installation was postponed for any reason. I was just wondering if for some reason the two days, because it sounds like they're going to need those two days, like they're expecting it to take two days. So if for some reason uh, there's a lot of precipitation or something that would cause them to have to change their excavation plan, is, is the two-day noise permit something that um, can have any adjustments at the staff level? Lawson said that they have the ability to work with the mayor's office and the Corporation Council if there are any emergency-based extensions needed. The board approved the fiber optic line and the noise permanent unanimously. The next Board of Public Works meeting will be held on December 21st. Up next, we have an excerpt from the Brown County Hour, a program brought to you from the hills and hollers of Brown County. In this excerpt, we turn to Jim Eagleman for his essay called Farmer's Almanac. The Brown County Hour airs on the first Sunday of each month at 9 a.m. and again on the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. With the changes occurring with the climate, I wondered recently if the tried and true Farmer's Almanac was reflecting these changes. Is it still a fair and trustworthy reference for us gardeners? Has it remained popular with landscapers, weather watchers, and plant growers, as it has for many years? Or has it gotten away from its usual predictions, sometimes based merely on folk tales and hearsay? I recall we once referred to the Farmer's Almanac in one of my natural resources classes during a discussion of weather. 
and if the patterns of weather affected wildlife, and could a resource manager use the information provided in the almanac to accurately determine what habitat to improve, what food plots maybe to plant for that year. I recall the prediction for that winter was for prolonged cold and lots of snow, and that forecast actually happened. But this was long before any computer models were used and satellite coverage is advanced as it is now. The Farmer's Almanac provides 16 months of weather forecasts for seven zones in the U.S. in its little compact book. It is now predicting for the upcoming winter that the worst of the bitterly cold weather conditions will affect areas east of the Rockies all the way to the Appalachians. It also says that Canada can expect a teeth-chattering winter, that's their words, with below normal temperatures from coast to coast. Conversely, the Farmer's Almanac is predicting above normal temperatures everywhere except southern British Columbia, which they say experiences colder average temperatures in January and February. Farmer's Almanac predictions are usually followed by meteorologists today with a bit of tongue-in-cheek reaction. It shows the Farmer's Almanac is all over the place, and one of the predictions is bound to be right, says David Phillips senior climatologist with the Environment and Climate Change Canada. If you don't like the one forecast, go and look at the other one, he says with a chuckle. How exactly does the Farmer's Almanac predict a season? According to the old Farmer's Almanac, it is a solar science method, which means looking at the sunspot activity, climatology, looking at prevailing weather patterns, and the meteorology and studying the atmosphere the Farmer's Almanac, on the other hand, says it relies on a specific and reliable set of rules that were developed back in 1818 by David Young, the first publisher. And he says those are based on mathematical and astronomical figures. Basically, in the 1800s, the Almanac was first formed by this editor, David Young, who was a mathematician, a calculator, and an astronomer slash farmer. He recognized weather was most important to farmers. So he developed a mathematical formula that gets applied to sunspot activity, planet positions, the effects of the moon has on the earth, and those are the components along with the math to do the weather. But this isn't how today's scientists look at it as they forecast the upcoming seasons. Climatologists examine the multitude of data that includes water temperatures and oceans around the world, ice conditions and land conditions, as well as the current season. That's not something you can do if you're forecasting seasons ahead, as the almanacs do. So David Phillips says, so when you think about the fact that we can't even get it right for tomorrow, and then when you're trying to get it right for a year and a half in advance, it really is the joke that it is, he says. But he's an almanac fan. Forecasting the weather is tricky business. It's fairly well understood that accuracy decreases the further you go out. Phillips said that the rate of accuracy for forecasting the weather for the current day is roughly 95%. Two days out, it drops to 85%. And three days out, it drops to about 75%. Another factor to take into account is the climatologists dealing in a world that they've never seen before due to climate change. Changes come fast, some slow but it is a shifting stage, he said. While there haven't been any recent studies on the accuracy of the Farmer's Almanac and its predictions of seasonal forecasts, a paper 
published by the journal Weatherwise back in 1981, found that rather than the claim held by the old farmer's almanac that they forecast with 80% accuracy, the reality was it was closer to about 52%, slightly greater than chance. So when you receive your copy of the Farmer's Almanac this Christmas, tucked into your stocking as a last-minute gift idea, enjoy the history this work has accumulated over the years. It's suggestions for growing bigger and better tomatoes, how to haul walnuts, trim branches, transplant perennials. And know that while we may rely on more advanced methods for weather predictions, we can leave that to the scientists. I'll use my copy to continue to enjoy and peruse and leisurely read and see for myself the differences it tells me to look for and what I actually see outside my window. Thanks for listening to another segment of Nature Ramblings. For the Brown County Hour, I'm Jim Eagleman. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Jacob Brunig, a volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project. The B-Town Bike Project is a local bicycle co-op that recycles bikes back into the community. Brunig says that through his work with the Bike Project, he wants to emphasize climate sustainability by encouraging local residents to use a bicycle as an alternative to driving. We turn now to Cade Young for more. Well, Jacob Brunig, volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project, welcome to the WFHB Local News. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Jacob, first off, would you just walk me through... What is the Bloomington Community Bike Project? Sure. So we're a local community nonprofit. We're part of the Center for Sustainable Living, um, and we serve a bunch of purposes. Um, so first and foremost, our goal is to you know create sustainable transportation, both financially sustainable and um, environmentally sustainable transportation here in Bloomington. Um, we do that by expanding access to cycling for all kinds of folks, whether that is um, helping people complete repairs on their own bikes and teaching people how to repair bikes, whether that is selling um, used bikes at low cost, or through our earn a bike program where people can come in, volunteer with our shop, and then earn a bike of their own that they can then fix up. Additionally, during the peak pandemic, we had a program going where we had um, free bikes for folks who were not able to access transportation for various reasons. Um, so we actually had an opportunity for people to receive a free bike from us without doing earn a bike, just able to take one, one home that day. Now, I want to focus on what you specifically do at the B-Town Bike Project. So what, what does your volunteer work entail? Yeah, so it kind of can vary day to day. Sometimes I will work a shift with folks, one of our open hours. During those times, I will help folks repair bikes. I will assist people who are there at their earn a bike projects, and I'll repair bikes that have come in that you might get that we're working on selling. Other times I will do work sort of when we're closed, like some of our volunteers do, to repair older bikes to be resold because we finance, you know, our rent and a lot of our expenses through selling used bikes as well. And then finally, I help with projects like when we'll do sort of big clean out projects, big storage realignment projects. And finally, I often talk to folks in the media like you 
I'm often the person who kind of gives interviews about the bike project. I see. Well, thank you. It seems like uh, you stay pretty busy over there at the bike project. Now, you have several programs at the Bloomington Community Bike Project, uh, some of which you've already touched on, but that includes, you know, the Earn a Bike program, maintenance classes, ladies' night. So would you touch, um, just expand a little bit more on on what some of these programs entail? Absolutely. Um, So Earn a Bike is definitely our most popular one. What we do is we receive donations from people in the community of bikes and everything from fully functional, ready to go, to a bare frame that is badly bent. And so... With these bikes, we're able to have folks who come in, they'll help us in the shop in various ways, whether that's cleaning, organization, light repair of other people. And after doing that for a shift, they're able to select a bike that needs to be repaired to be their own. Then with our help, they can fix up this bike and it can become theirs. And then additionally, once they're you know out riding it, they can come back to us and you know get help with repairs and things like that. Other great programs are things like, you know, we have our open nights, like I mentioned. We also have a special one, like you just heard on Ladies Night. That is Thursday nights, and it is from 6 to 9, and for folks who are female-identified, just again, because spaces like the Bike Project can, you know, we want them to be welcoming to all people, and some people are much more welcome when there aren't men around. So it's another great, great thing we do there. And then finally, one more that we haven't talked about yet is kids' bikes. So we often have a lot of children's bikes. Kids' bikes are always free. They don't need to be earned a bike at all. Any child who wants a bike can always come and get one from us. We often also include a helmet with that as well. You said earlier that you're a member of the Center for Sustainable Living, and you touched on how you, you know, you want to emphasize climate sustainability. So would you explain, just really hit it on the nose, how the Bloomington Community Bike Project emphasizes uh, sustainability? Oh, absolutely. So again, you know, biking is a wonderfully sustainable transportation, fully person-powered, and you know, it, it hits on so many levels because obviously there's the first of, you know, biking rather than r- driving a car certainly helps with CO2 emissions. The shop itself also helps in a lot of ways as well. You know, bikes that are disused are often thrown away, end up in landfills, things like that, which is no good because frequently they can be reused really easily. Bikes are kind of a wonderfully uh, fixable thing. You can find old parts and make, make a lot of not working bikes into one working bike pretty easily. The other big way is, you know, the sort of shift towards more sustainable transit sometimes requires means that folks don't have. Like our town has a lot of really wonderful local bike shops that are incredible. They sell great bikes. They have great repair services. But for some of our community members, you know, that's just cost prohibitive. So it's making sure that that's something that's available to everyone, not just folks who are able to afford um, to go to shops themselves. I see. And that's that's a perfect segue for my next question. So, I mean, Bloomington is famously a cycling community with races such as the Little 500. And you just generally see a swath of cyclists always riding around town. But a bike can be an expensive thing without a low barrier to entry per se. How did the Bloomington Bike Project look at this and say, what can we do to fulfill a need here in the community? Absolutely. So just like you mentioned, you know, bikes are wonderful and abundant here in this town, but they can also be fairly expensive, especially right now with the pandemic affecting supply chains. And so, you know, our primary purpose is to take that barrier away, whether that's selling, you know, a used bike at a much lower cost or doing an earn a bike or even a free bike for a child or someone in need. That's our primary thing, because, again, we have, like you mentioned, we have a lot of cycling culture in this town. We also have a lot of cycling infrastructure. We have the B-Line. We have all kinds of great greenways. We have the 7th Street Path that just opened, you know. It's a really good, safe place to be on a bike, but so many of our community members are still unable to get that bike, get that initial step to get them going. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Now, the COVID-19 pandemic, you touched on this a bit, but I was just curious, when that hit, how did the Bloomington Bike Project fare? Yes, it was definitely unexpected and difficult for us, but we, we adapted really quickly. You know, once things were locked down, we obviously weren't open for open hours anymore at that time, but we quickly pivoted to seeing how we could still serve the community. So we shifted to selling a lot of used bikes as well as opening up our free bike program. So again, for folks who might have lost a job recently, who might suddenly have lost access to transportation for all kinds of reasons around COVID, we suddenly had repaired low-cost bikes free for many people who weren't able to afford them, and again, used bikes for people who did. So we became much more of a shop than we historically were. We did still help with repairs as we were able to, and then as things got safer and warmer, we started doing repair shop days again outdoors fully, so out in our, our open parking lot by the B-Line. That was really successful. And now we've, you know, continued to uh, recommend or require rather masking in the shop, distancing when able, but we've been able to kind of open up fully again to the most like we've been since before things began. But yeah, it was a, it was a huge hit. The other really sort of unexpected thing that happened with COVID was that sort of some months into it, when people wanted to be outside, suddenly bikes were hard to come by. Shops sold out of bikes and there weren't going to be any more. There still actually are, is a pretty intense bike shortage. So even if you are someone with means who wants to ride a bike, it can just be hard to find one. And so again, that's where our used bikes for sale really have been great for the community and for the shop. And that, you know, even people who have money to spend on a bike, you know, there's nowhere to turn. So with us there to help fill that gap, it's really helped get people on bikes. And again, every dollar somebody spends at our shop goes right into helping other people in the community. Okay, so now we're going on year three of the pandemic. So I was just curious, you know, looking forward to the future, five years down the road, where where do you envision you guys to be? Absolutely. I mean, ideally right in the heart of Bloomington, whether in our current space or in another one, we found that, you know, being on the beeline in the middle of town makes us really, really effective. People are able to, you know, people who need us know where to find us. People who might not know about us find out about us quickly. We'd obviously like to continue to expand our services, things like that. We're now open four nights a week, which is just really excellent. So our big goals are, you know, to continue to grow our volunteer base who can allow us to be open more. Because During our interview, our guest was outside in the park on the phone. So we apologize for any wind disturbances. Well, COVID has helped us kind of reevaluate how we can better serve our community and how we can better set up our space in general. We actually recently did a very large overhaul of how we store things, um, how we set up things, again, just to make the space as usable as it can be for the community and as accessible as it can be for anybody who might want to make use of our services. So really our, our goal for the near term is to continue to expand that influence. You know, we've been a part of Bloomington for the better part of 30 years, and we've done that by continuing to grow and adapt and make sure that what we're doing is, you know, what, what our community needs. Lastly, riding a bicycle to work every day and using a bike generally as a means of transportation can be a lot better for the environment than, say, driving your car to work. So how do you hope the work that you do translates into work of climate sustainability? Yeah, I mean, it's just that, right? Letting people know that it can be something that's a viable option. Because for a lot of folks who might want to ride to work, you know, uh, something at the bike shop may not be affordable. It also may not really be accessible to them. You know, a high-end racing bike is wonderful. I love them, but they are not the go-to to get around town. And so showing folks that there's all kinds of bikes that they could build, that they could ride, and that are out there to meet their needs. Because frequently when we think of cycling, you know, because of our great legacy of cycling here, we think of, you know, Lycra, we think of aerodynamics, 
we don't often think of the kind of bikes that most people in the community would actually benefit from having. So again, uh, in addition to sort of the cost barriers, there's just that whole, the barrier of not knowing what to do to get started, you know, not knowing how to bike in traffic, where to bike safely, what kind of a bike would make sense for that, because we do all of that as well. We have printed up maps that we made with the park service that show all of the bicycle paths in town. Again, sort of in addition to getting the physical bicycle itself, getting the knowledge of how to interact with our town and a bicycle, what kind, you know, on your bicycle in a way that takes advantage of all of the great things we have here. Because again, so much of it is just, it's a big leap. It's a new thing. So getting people on their bike, even if it's just a few days a week, even if it's just on the nice days, getting people comfortable with that, teaching people how to do that in a way that isn't judgmental and isn't, you know, uh, off-putting or frightening to newcomers. Wow. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I really uh, appreciate the work you guys are doing. But I want to give you the last word here, Jacob. Is there anything else that you would like to add that maybe I didn't ask, I might have missed on my end, uh, before we part ways? Yeah, I mean, the only other big thing I would say is, you know, we are the community bike project. And for us to continue, we always rely on the community support, whether that's donations of bikes, donations of time. You know, we always need new volunteers. Obviously, folks who know how to repair bikes are great. But if you don't and you're just willing to come out and help and learn, we're always welcome to that, too. We get some of our best volunteers are people who never knew anything about a bike and just showed up, kept coming, and kept helping. And then finally, a really great thing that folks in the community can do right now is that Blooming Foods, we are the Roundup for Change uh, nonprofit. It's the Center for Sustainable Living. So if you're at Blooming Foods this week and you decide to round up, that's a great way you can help us out without putting forth any extra effort. Because again, like I said, you know, we're here to serve the community and we're here because of our community. And with our community um, and with our community support, we'll continue to be here indefinitely. Absolutely. Well, Jacob Brunig, a volunteer for the Bloomington Community Bike Project, thank you for chatting with us on the WFHB Local News. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And like I said, uh, any of your listeners, please feel free to come on out. Um, We're open on Mondays and Wednesdays from 6 to 9. We have our ladies' night on Thursdays from 6 to 9, and we are there on Saturdays from 12 to 3. So if you have a bike, if you have a question, or if you just want to see what we're about, come on down. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Kate Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. 
Just search our call letters, WFHB, whenever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 